Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our online events, including on February 7th, Zachary Schrag discussing honest history with Catherine Epstein. Coming up on the show today, Peter Goodman, global economics correspondent for the New York Times and author of the new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Uh, Peter, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. So remind us, who and what is Davos Man? Well, Davos Man is a term coined by the political scientist Samuel Huntington back in 2004. He was referring to attendees of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. This is this you know, glittering gathering of the most powerful people on earth, the billionaire class, heads of state, celebrities. Uh, but I use it more expansively to refer not only to the billionaire class, uh, who people go to Davos, but really anybody in a position to write the rules for the rest of us while positing themselves as our savior. I mean, the the key to understanding Davos man as a species, and I've written the book as a sort of taxonomy of this species, is that he's really a predator who manages to expand his territory and take it from others by uh, presenting himself as an ally of all. And so uh, we are really living in a world, I argue, uh, that's been organized by Davos Man to deliver more wealth to the people who already have most of it while pretending that that's really great for everyone. Yeah, you say right at the very beginning of the book that they write the rules for the rest of the world. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't mean any kind of you know puppeteer conspiracy. I mean stuff that we can see in plain view. Um, I mean, the billionaire class has steadily, in most major democracies, used campaign contributions, lobbying, influence, social networks through inclusion at elite universities uh, to uh, essentially uh, set up our uh, rules of uh, economics, uh, has insinuated his thinking into our political discourse. And so we've been living uh, over the last half century through this uh, dramatic uh, bottom-up transfer of wealth that has not happened by accident. It has happened through these means. And it's happened you know, so gradually and relentlessly as to almost be invisible. You know, it's, it's sort of like climate change where nobody really cares about the, you know, fraction of a millimeter increase of some body of water until there's a huge storm and a flood. And we're living in that storm and flood right now. That's the pandemic, which has exposed the consequences of entrusting the billionaire class to take care of our problems. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that the points that you make is that the pandemic has, has really put all of these elements into uh, sharp relief. But uh, that although the pandemic has been terrible for most of us, for Davos man, uh, it, it seems to have been pretty good. They seized on the pandemic and they feasted on it, you say. Right. I mean, take, well, they've told us this, right? And, and they've also told us that we should be grateful. So take, you know, Mark Benioff, who's one of my five primary characters. He's the CEO of a big tech company called Salesforce. So they make software that allows people to work from home. So their sales have soared during the pandemic. Uh, Benioff himself has seen his net worth increase beyond $10 billion. And at Davos last year, this was virtual Davos because of the pandemic, they couldn't meet in person. Benioff actually said, CEOs are the real heroes of the pandemic. And, you know, not frontline medical workers, not the essential workers delivering our 
packages and our food, not parents dealing with uh, children stuck at home, uh, dealing with distance learning, CEOs. And he was talking about vaccines. He was talking about uh, the uh, delivery of credit from financial institutions, staving off bankruptcy. And, and he even said, you know, the government did not save you. We saved you. We saved the world. We saved the world, not for profit, he said, but to save the world. And I mean, you, your your sense of outrage. I, I think it's fair to use that word actually in the, yeah. in the book. Uh, I mean, this is breathtaking. You say that it's a sentiment that emphasises the difference between billionaires and the rest of us. Uh, but the thing that really seems to energise you here is that is this notion of self interest de- dressed up as social concern. Yeah, I mean, we see this time and again. So. The, the fashion now is this thing called stakeholder capitalism. I, I write about how Benioff champions this concept. I write about how Larry Fink, who's the world's largest asset manager, somebody who ma- now manages $10 trillion in funds. These are pension funds from around the world, university endowments. They've told us essentially, Milton Friedmanism is over. Corporations are no longer organized just to maximize returns for, for shareholders. They're now catering to stakeholders. You know, that's this magic word for Davos man. Uh, they're talking about local communities, civil society, labor, though importantly, never labor unions. It's always labor. Uh, and, and they're supposed to be able to solve our environmental problems, too. They're going to deal with climate change. This is really just this elaborate charade that's designed to prevent us from exercising our democratic powers to demand a say in the rules, to to demand progressive taxation, to demand uh, regulations, not just for climate change, but for workplace safety. And, you know, I I look at how Steve Schwartzman, uh, who's the world's largest private equity uh, investor, who's worth about $35 billion, vacuumed up foreclosures in the U.S. uh, and actually around uh, Europe as well, after the great financial crisis of, of 2008, and kept saying, you know, I'm really just doing this as a way to deliver affordable housing. Uh, I've I've taken all these houses that have fallen into a state of disrepair, and I've mowed the lawns and got rid of the rodents. And, you know, you can almost hear the sort of soothing soundtrack for a life insurance commercial as an adorable golden retriever puppy romps on a lawn with a toddler. The deliver, You know, the reality is he delivers something called invitation homes, which jacks up everyone's rents. Uh, There are evictions. Uh, Maintenance is cut to the bone. Uh, And we have this real degradation of living standards for many people. And then he takes the winnings and he invests dramatically in healthcare in the run-up to the pandemic. This is part of why uh, we have uh, fewer hospital rooms, roughly a third fewer in the States, similar situation around Europe, uh, where a, a lot of you know savvy money has flowed into healthcare and has gotten a piece of the action. And the result is the billionaires are a lot wealthier. And the rest of us are dealing with weakened healthcare systems in the middle of a pandemic. And you you describe this as profiteering off suffering. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that's fair. I mean, let's take a look at at Blackstone Schwartzman again. You know, Blackstone buys a company called Team Health in the U.S. in 2016. This is one of the largest uh, staffing companies for emergency rooms. You know, they put doctors into huge numbers of emergency rooms, not by accident. 
that this is where Schwartzman's interested in investing. He's very good at finding places where not only is money changing hands, but one party is vulnerable. I mean, a casino magnate will tell you, you make out nicely when people are in a darkened room, they have no idea what time it is and they're drinking. Uh, the emergency room is the part of the hospital where people are the least likely to ask about the particularities of their health insurance coverage and who what the bill will be. They'll just sign on the dotted line to get to over to the people coats uh, so they can get some some help. And it uh, turns out the team health is in the middle of this so-called surprise billing scandal. The surprise is not of the happy variety. People think they're seeing a doctor at a hospital that's in their health insurance network, and then they start getting collection agents calls and threats, you know, or, or, and extravagant bills that are wildly in excess of the norm. And the worst part of this is that in the run-up to the pandemic, one of the doctors, I tell this story in the book, working for Team Health, a guy named Ming Lin out at a hospital in Bellingham, Washington, blows the whistle on the fact that they're letting people come in the door for profit-making surgeries that are that are not absolutely necessary. There are no people wearing masks at reception. The pandemic has already reached the U.S. And he asks again and again, you know, what are we doing here? And he's told, well, we don't want to scare the customer. Uh, Team Health's uh, client is the hospital. We don't want to upset them. They make a lot of money off of these surgeries. He's eventually fired when he goes public as a whistleblower. Uh, and of course, uh, this is a clear example of Blackstone prioritizing its own revenues over uh, fairness and public health. Um, what is it that you think is is unique about this age of Davos man? How do these kind of characters, uh, how are they different to the robber barons of the 19th and early 20th century, the, the J.P. Morgans and, and the Carnegie's and the Mellons and so on? I mean, they're much more sophisticated and they have much more sophisticated tools at, the, at, at their disposal to protect themselves from accountability. So, of course, you know, J.P. Morgan, uh, Carnegie, Rockefeller, I mean, they, they would brutalize labor. They uh, completely undermined any concept of antitrust. I mean, antitrust law, modern antitrust law in the States is a reaction to the monopoly power they build up. Uh, but, you know, by and large, they're content to have all the money. Uh, they'll build a conference hall here, the, a, a concert center. They like to put their names on buildings. They like to leave statues of themselves lying around. But by and large, wealth is an end in itself. Davos Man is playing on a whole different level. I mean, Davos Man wants our adulation, and Davos Man wants this whole sort of fantasy narrative that he's just a regular person. I mean, Schwartzman loves to tell the story of how he worked in his father's linen store as a teenager in the suburbs of Philadelphia. He's just a regular middle-class guy with middle-class values. Benioff during the pandemic, I actually went on Jim Cramer's show uh, to say, you know, we're all one in the pandemic. I mean, Benioff is sort of prone toward this mystical, bohemian kind of Silicon Valley claptrap cliche vernacular. Uh, but he, he actually said... You know, the great thing about the pandemic is it's united humanity. It's it's erased the illusions of our borders. Uh, and I'm just here to express my love for all of you. And he took a bow for a 90-day pledge to not lay off any of his workers. And the day after the show, he actually laid off a 1,000 workers. And of course, he's saying all this 
from his oceanfront mansion on the big island of Hawaii, or maybe it's his $28 million home overlooking San Francisco Bay. I, I can't recall. Uh, I mean, th- this is this is a whole different level of, of seeking adulation and using it as a prophylactic against accountability. And then, you know, take Jeff Bezos, whose wealth uh, goes past $200 billion in the midst of the pandemic, while his warehouse workers are left to toil with no protective gear. And while he's publicly saying, you guys are heroes, you're essential workers, you're delivering protective gear to save people's grandmothers. Uh, the the head of a labor uh, movement in New York is fired uh, for demanding uh, that the facility be shut down as COVID spreads. He's fired for violating quarantine, which is incredible, given that everyone what he wants is for everyone uh, to be quarantined. And Amazon then produces. I mean, back to your question about the robber barons, they produce these television spots where they interview Amazon workers talking about how happy they are, how they're protected, all the measures the company's taking. And they disseminate these through local television stations across the United States that then air them as regular news segments. I mean, this is power that the robber barons could have just fantasized about. I mean, you do, you talk about, wo- about wealth uh, flowing upwards, that privilege reinforces privilege. But most of the characters that you write about, and I suppose Davos Man, Kind of more generally, that the the geniuses, if you like, the disruptors, they don't come from Davos man. They they're not Davos products. They've many of them have done it themselves, haven't they? I suppose for fans of Succession, they're Logan Roy. They're not Kendall Roy. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some truth to that. I mean, certainly the the tech disruptors, you know, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs. I mean, there are stories of people who have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. I mean, Microsoft really was started in a garage. I don't have a beef with these guys. I'm not here to demonize uh, CEOs or, or billionaires. And in fact, I mean, I say in the book directly, where would we be uh, having uh, come through multiple waves of the pandemic without e-commerce? And we certainly have Jeff Bezos to thank for lots of innovation. The question is, who benefits from these gains? And do the billionaires have to pay their fair share in taxes to fund lots of the infrastructure that's been integral to them building their fortunes? I mean, Amazon, Salesforce, Apple, none of these places can exist without legions of graduates coming out of publicly financed uh, research institutions. The internet, of course, is major public infrastructure, highway systems. how, how do we run a democracy if huge numbers of people don't have any health care, have, have no access to housing? You know, let, let's remember that Bezos is a guy who pays income taxes on $83,000 of salary. I mean, that's his salary. It, it, that, that's a, roughly equivalent to what a public school teacher in California earns. And we don't have wealth taxes in the United States. So we don't get any piece of his actual wealth. Benioff, you know, who's a guy who actually does engage in a lot of philanthropy, uh, his company has paid the modest sum of zero in federal taxes a couple of times in recent years on several billion dollars in revenues. So I don't have a idea that capitalism creates winners and losers. It's a wonderful way to get innovation. I'm a capitalist. I just think we need some rules. We need progressive taxation. We need antitrust enforcement. And we need labor to be able to represent itself and get its own 
piece of the pie. Yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? There's a, there's a lot in the book about taxes, and uh, you describe this as the cosmic lie, the, the, the kind of the entire taxation system uh, in the book. And and yet, you know, we have seen in the past things like the Kennedy tax cuts, for example, um, kind of eventually passed in 1964, where there were massive tax cuts, and that idea of a, a kind of a rising tide lifting lifting all boats and so on. And yet, that's not really what we're talking about here when we have characters who are playing so little in taxation? Well, we have no social safety net in the US. And I mean, in Britain, while I was writing the book, you know, they'd come through 10 years of really wrenching austerity that had taken a social safety net uh, that was, you know, world leading, uh, a real floor uh, beneath the average person in, in the UK uh, in, in the years after the Second World War and the, and the Depression. And, you know, now you're in a situation where if you fail, uh, homelessness in the U.S. is never that far away. I mean, in Britain, they have national health care, but that's been uh, substantially degraded. And and so the consequences when you engage in the cosmic lie, uh, you know, this, this idea that if we just give more money to the richest people, it will all magically trickle down to everyone, something that in reality has never happened uh, anywhere. Uh, if you don't have... Uh, some way to help people who stumble, then what you have is dysfunction, you have anger. I mean, you have rage. And the rage that we see uh, in the U.S. Uh, is, I think, you know, a direct result of years of ordinary people concluding, not crazily, that their needs and their, their interests in supporting their families just doesn't count for very much uh, to the people who are running the economy. In Britain, I think Brexit is, is a complicated... Uh, it, it's a complicated picture, and to I, I get into least. it in the chapter. <laughs> in the, but, but I mean, I think you can boil it down on some level to this kind of nativist response to the reality that the vast majority of people had seen their wages cut in real terms over a decade, while uh, social programs were cut at the same time that wealthy people were doing better than ever, and everyone was being asked to sacrifice. I mean, George Osborne, who was the chancellor of, of the Exchequer, uh, who delivered austerity uh, starting in 2010 in Britain, was constantly speaking in this tone of, you know, we're all going to sacrifice together and we're going to get past this period where we've been living beyond our means. I mean, he's a guy who, you know, he's a classic product of posh schools, country houses, you know, drinking societies, hijinks that only the privileged could get away with. And, you know, people could see right through this. And and I, I mean, it's a foreign correspondent cliche alert, I'm afraid, but like the best explanation I ever heard from Brexit, I, and I, he guy used more colorful language than I'll use on your podcast, you know, we're up in Sunderland in the Northeast of England. He said, look, none of us really understood what this was. We just knew that George Osborne and David Cameron wanted it, and they'd been, you know, screwing us. He said more colorfully, uh, the same way Maggie Thatcher had screwed us going back to the '80s, and we didn't understand it, but we certainly won't, weren't voting with that lot. And I, I think that is more or less how Brexit happened. And it's, it's curious. I mean, we don't, we don't want to get too sidetracked onto to British politics, but you know, the, the Conservatives won the election in 2015 and they won the election again in 2019. So that there's a sense that, you know, in, in terms of political success, that Conservative narrative, whatever, however we want to interpret it, uh, seems to have had popular support. Oh, without question. Uh, I mean, 
there were certainly a lot of democratic votes that went into producing Brexit. But I mean, one of the things I'm trying to reveal, this is not an original idea, but I, I, I hope to connect the dots in a powerful way in the book, is that you can't separate public opinion and the political process from what the billionaire class, Davos man, is doing in terms of pulling the levers of our democracy. I mean, it's just simply not an accident uh, that time and again, and, and I go through this pattern, you know, in the UK, in the US, in Sweden, in Italy, in France, time and again, we see systematic, gradual pillaging where Davos man succeeds in dismantling public infrastructure, transferring the proceeds to himself, then there's scarcity, then there's anger, and eventually some political opportunist shows up and uses anger against somebody, immigrants, the people coming over the border, China, and you know China is a big problem in the global trading system, but our problems in the US and the UK and Italy I mean, if we're trying to understand why uh, laid off manufacturing workers are suffering, China is not the explanation. I mean, China is part of the explanation, but the culpability rests on decisions made in boardrooms in London and New York and Seattle, uh, policies that are made in London and Washington. I mean, I mean this, is, this is just the classic dodge that, of, of accountability that we see again and again. It's interesting that in that list you didn't mention Brussels, and it, and it struck me when I was was reading the book that very often uh, the European Union is presented as a kind of institutionalization of Davos Man. That uh, it's it's not something which is directly democratically accountable, and so on, and seems to have this real kind of distance between ordinary people, the lives of ordinary people, uh, and what is going on within the the Commission of the European Union. What what, what do you what what do you make of that argument? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And I think in terms of the explanation for Davos man's machinations in places like Italy and France uh, and Germany, uh, Brussels certainly deserves a lot of culpability. I mean, the irony of Brexit, of course, this may be uh, news to an American audience, is that Britain had the best deal of all. Britain didn't have to deal with Brussels. It had its own currency. It ran its own monetary policy. It controlled its own budget. So its decision to in inflict German-style austerity on itself was very much home cooking. Uh, but yes, if you're talking about all of the institutions that have uh, effectively been manipulated by Davos Man and have uh, delivered to us Davos Man's thinking about it's essentially again and again it's austerity for everyone except for billionaires. Uh, Brussels is part of that. So, so how do we? I don't know what's the phrase. Put manners on, socialize Davos Man. How do we regulate without diluting the astonishing innovation? After all, you know, in our age, our life uh, it's, it's incomparably better for Google. Google and Apple and Netflix and Amazon, sure. certainly better than when I was growing up. But so how do we keep that, but deal with the other things that you're talking about? Well, I think that's a really important question uh, because, you know, the ultimate false binary choice that's been foisted on us by Davos Man is that we jeopardize all of those gains if we alter the status quo. So, I mean, take vaccine policy, for instance, right? I mean, Davos Man would have us believe that we accept a status quo in which Pfizer and Moderna have given us, you know, forget Google and Uber, I mean, COVID vaccines, right? This is lifeblood, uh, and we should be grateful. We should be grateful. Uh, we should be really glad that there's smart people in those companies who worked rapidly to, in record time, deliver these vaccines. But we can still ask 
uh, why can't we distribute these vaccines that represent uh, a corporatizing of the gains of, in many cases, uh, publicly financed research? Why can't we have a say over how they're distributed? We've watched Pfizer just sell its vaccines to the highest bidder around the world. And the result of that is uh, anybody who wants uh, protection in a country like the UK or the US is welcome to it. And we've got frontline medical workers in parts of Africa and South Asia attending to COVID patients without protection, which, by the way, is how we ended up with variants like Omicron. So set aside the humanitarian catastrophe, we in the United States are subsidizing the monopoly profits of companies like Pfizer through our extended pandemic, through the closure of our schools, the disruption of our kids' education, through our fear, death, continued hits to livelihood. So we need to recognize that that is a false binary. We can have vaccines and still have some regulation uh, over who gets them. And, and this is not some sort of you know utopian fantasy. I mean, go back to the world that we lived in 1945 to 1975, roughly. And I don't have a fetish for that period. I don't want to go back. We've made a lot of progress that we want to hang on to. But in one key regard, you know, in that period in the US, if there were productivity gains, if there was economic growth, the gains were distributed to working people commensurate with those gains in productivity. And the result of that was more people had a stake in the system. We, we can get back to that quite simply in terms of what we need to do, though it's very difficult to actually execute on it, and that is antitrust enforcement, progressive taxation, building out of social safety nets, and an increase in labor power. I mean, we could fix a lot of problems with those things. The problem, of course, is that our democracies are very much uh, dominated by Davos man and his, and his interests, and he's not just going to disarm uh, unilaterally. It's going to require mobilization. And and is it about the political culture as well? I mean, I'm thinking about that period that you just described, and we talked about the Kennedy uh, tax cuts previously. I mean, they, they were pushed through by a Republican Treasury Secretary, Douglas Dillon, in a Democratic administration with the support of Keynesians like Heller and Samuelson and so on. There was, there was a sense of a bipartisan effort of governing from the centre. Is, is, that, is that one of the roots of the problem with dealing with things today? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, Maggie Thatcher famously said there is no such thing as society. Uh, and that, that idea that it's a toxic idea is, has taken root uh, just about everywhere, uh, everywhere that we're discussing. And the result of that is no one wants to sacrifice because they can see that no one else is sacrificing. I mean, how do we deal with a complicated problem like climate change in the U.S. where we do need to be able to say to coal miners in West Virginia where, you know, Joe Manchin is holding up, you know, any kind of political change in the name, in part, uh, protecting coal miners. How do we say to them, hey, sorry, it's true. In terms of climate change, uh, you're going to need to find something else to do. Uh, but you can trust that if we make these sacrifices in the short term, we'll all come out stronger in the longer term, and you'll end up in a better place. The coal miner has every rational reason to say, you got to be kidding me. If I give up my livelihood, I'm getting nothing. Nobody's going to help me. And that's based on lived experience. I mean, a, a few years ago, I went to this, um, this mine in Sweden, and I was talking to these miners who were looking at all kinds of automation. The truck drivers were going to be, be replaced by self-driving trucks. And I was really astonished as I walked around talking to these people uh, that everyone said, yeah, we're fine with this, actually, because um, 
you know, we may lose our jobs, but they'll train us for another job and this will make our, our company more competitive and so they'll make more money and we'll end up with higher wages. And that was not some, you know, religious faith. That was lived experience because in Sweden, labor unions represent roughly 70% of the workforce. They sit down opposite employers association representatives and they hash out wage agreements in which everyone understands that wages go up commensurate with productivity gains. So they could have that faith. And as a result, they can be much more entrepreneurial. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say. I mean, it's interesting that because I know that some people have presented the the other side of the argument, saying that you know actually these kind of tech billionaires are in a much better position to to make major change than government. So, for example, has Elon Musk done more for environmentalism than any government regulation? If if car emissions are eradicated by the middle of the decade, it, it's going to be his kind of advocacy and his kind of innovation, isn't it? That that's going to have made that possible. And, and we should support that and praise it. And that can be part of the solution. But we can't count on it. That's the point of my book. Uh, yes, the private sector matters tremendously. Uh, yes, the billionaire class is full of people who've delivered all sorts of innovations and who have tremendous knowledge that needs to be part of dealing with huge challenges like pandemics and the climate change. It, it, it's not that I want these guys, you know, ostracized. The Bolsheviks should not come and just dismantle everything. We don't need a revolution. We just need more of a say over who gets the gains of our very productive form of capitalism so that it's not coming at the expense of most working people and then ultimately the functioning of our democracy. I mean, we, we simply cannot function in those terms. And while it's true that billionaires, you know, can say and do say, I mean, th this was Benioff's point, you know, CEOs of the heroes of the pandemic. He was talking about the fact that he had pulled strings to uh, find 50 million pieces of PPE, you know, hand sanitizer, uh, medical gowns, gloves, and face masks in China, and it brought them to the States during the first wave of the pandemic, distributed them to frontline medical workers. Hey, that's great. You know, he should be praised for that, and I'm willing to believe that he saved lives. But we can still ask, why is the world's supposedly wealthiest, most powerful country dependent upon some tech guy to save us in the middle of a pandemic? Part of that is because Benioff and other Davos men have so... Uh, comprehensively pillaged government through legal tax avoidance and in some cases tax evasion that, yeah, government is often not very good. You know, and I wonder, I mean, even on the the idea of uh, vaccines, I mean, is is that an example of where these different elements did work together? We had Brendan Burrell, the author of The First Shots on the, on the show recently, and he was showing how kind of something like Operation Warp Speed uh, did demonstrate the government and these private companies working together to deliver this, frankly, historic achievement of the vaccine in record time. I think that's right. I mean, I'm not against public-private partnership. I think public-private partnership can often be uh, very powerful, and I think the vaccines uh, will go down as, as a case study. But we could have had Operation Warp Speed and have these vaccines in record time and still had some say over who gets access to this protection so that we're not in the position where we're subsidizing uh, the 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 corporate executives who run places like Pfizer and Moderna through the extension of the pandemic. And, you know, the pharmaceutical lobby, this is not by accident. Again, the pharmaceutical lobby, one of the most powerful lobbies in, in Washington and in Brussels, 
uh, has time and again staved off a sharing of technology, sharing of know-how by arguing that if the incentives that we have now are in any way uh, toyed with, the result will be a loss of desire, incentive on the part of pharmaceutical companies to churn out these life-saving uh, products. And that's just demonstrably nonsense. I mean, we heard all this uh, during the worst of the AIDS crisis. And since then, pharmaceutical companies have made more money than ever, even though they were eventually forced to share their intellectual property. It's, it's just... There's plenty of money out there. There's no reason why we can't live in a world where the executives at Pfizer and Moderna are doing just fine. Maybe they're still flying around in private jets. They're living in their beach houses. And we've got frontline medical workers in Africa protected so that just selfishly, we don't have to live through Omicron and whatever comes next in the Greek alphabet. Yeah, I really, I really was struck actually reading this book that you really do convey this kind of sense that we are living in a brave new world. And I, you know, thinking over the the broader picture, I was thinking about how you know how does an Enlightenment model of democracy from the 18th century and a 20th century social model adapt to this new age? And and as you make clear, the challenge is vast for us, isn't it? Yes, uh, it, it it really is uh, because... And you don't try to give any easy answers, which I think is to your credit. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I've, I've been criticized by some, and I, I think it's legitimate criticism that, you know, the things I'm proposing sound so simple, but they're, they're, they're very difficult to execute. And that's, look, that's fundamentally true. I mean, anything that we do that's meaningful requires forcing Davos man to make sacrifices. And that's you know, back to the World Economic Forum. I mean, the World Economic uh, the World Economic Forum meets in Davos every year under the mantra "committed to improving the state of the world," which is this wonderful phrase for an entity that's run and controlled by the ultimate beneficiaries of the status quo. You know, how do you turn that into something real? I mean, I'm not suggesting the World Economic Forum is the way we're going to solve any problems, but how do we? How do we take ownership of our democracies when our democracies have essentially been taken over by the people who benefit from the status quo? That's the ultimate question. And having uh, praised you for not, not taking uh, simple answers, I'm nevertheless going to ask you for one. If there was one thing that you would like to see done in the 2020s to address these massive problems, what would that thing be? Uh, well, I don't think any one thing will do it. I think it has to be the suite of things. Uh, but I, you know, I would lead with a wealth tax uh, because uh, if you have a wealth tax, then there's fairness in the system, and then there's the ability to finance all sorts of things that people actually want. I mean, we've accepted. Uh, this is a great victory of Davos, man. We've accepted this kind of zero-sum mentality for all public spending. Oh, we can't afford national health care in the States, even though somehow they managed to afford it in every other developed democracy, such that, you know, it's very difficult as an American to wander around Europe explaining to people that, yeah, there's actually 30 million people who have no health care. And even those of us who have it, we're not really sure how we use it. We're constantly having to battle with insurance companies to get it back. I mean, I think if we could, if we had a wealth tax, there would be more equity in the system and there would be then the capacity to actually discuss how do we provide the things that the public actually wants. So the book is Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. It's written by my guest, Peter Goodman, and published by Custom House. But for now, Peter, congratulations again on the book and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. 
Thank you so much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Rusick. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.